Are Australians drinking more than they did in the past? Do we know how many drinks a day can cause brain damage? And what damage to the body does too much alcohol do? Figures released recently from the not-for-profit organisation Arbius, with the support from many other organisations in the field, show that in general the population has very little idea of the correct answers. With me today I have Andrew Taylor, Clinical Nurse on Drug and Alcohol Clinical Services with the Hunter New England Health. And Andrew, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Do you think that alcohol is a bigger problem now than it was, say, 10 years ago? In some aspects, yes, but in terms of the total alcohol consumed per person, not really. There was a steady increase in alcohol consumption through the late 60s and 70s, and then there was followed by a decline through the 80s and 90s, and there's been a levelling out since then. But there is no doubt that alcohol is a very big problem for our community. Are children starting to drink at an earlier age? Drinking by young people essentially increases with age. In the age group of 12 to 15 years, the vast majority are not drinking, while the proportion increases in the 16s and 17s, and then there is a big increase in the 18 and 19-year-old age group. In relation to what is termed binge drinking, in 2004, which are the most recent figures we have for this 40% of the 14 to 19-year-olds binge drank at least once in that 12-month period. But one troublesome thing, I suppose, is that the rate for girls was slightly higher than that for boys. The girls' rate was 42% and the boys' rate 37%. Young men are still the heavier drinkers than women, but young women are now drinking more competitively with the men. However, there's no real evidence of increasing rates of teenage binge drinking over the last two of these types of surveys, but it's the drinking to intoxication that's worrying. Do you think that the girls have a different attitude towards alcohol now than, let's use that 10-year period, their overall attitude has increased? That I think the social mores and social mm. norms have probably changed. Back in my generation, it probably wasn't as acceptable for women to get heavily mm. intoxicated. And, yeah, maybe that's changed now with the younger group. I can remember that years ago women weren't even allowed in, into pubs and hotels. Yes. So maybe this has something to do with, yes. with that attitude. gradual changing of attitudes. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that the youngsters are drinking more with parental agreement, even though the law says that they shouldn't be supplied with and drinking under the age of 18? And what I'm trying to say is that are the parents encouraging their kids to drink when they're still underage? It's a little bit hard for me to comment on what particular parents might be doing, but certainly as part of the Liquor Act, it is not illegal for a parent to supply alcohol to their own children in their own home, but it is illegal to supply alcohol to any other underage person or supply it in any public area or licensed premises. The usual place of consumption for the underage group is at private parties in their own home or at friends' places. They're not in the street and, and out in public places as we sometimes think they might be. Yes, I think you're right. I think most of it is, at, at, as I say, at parties and people's homes. Mm. Can you tell me the estimated number of young Australians who are risking brain damage as the result of alcohol? What percentage of the young population? Yeah, as you say, in relation to the younger age group, as I've just mentioned, the, um, the risk of brain damage is sort of related to the level of consumption. And we know that 
you know, in most years, um, 40% of the 15 to 19-year-olds drink alcohol at an unsafe level on at least one occasion. Mm. Then it's the frequency to which a young person will drink at unsafe levels, and the frequency then increases the risk. The important thing with young people is that the human brain does not fully develop until uh, people are about 18 to 25 even. Younger than this, the electrical and the chemical pathways of the brain are still being developed and the evidence is showing that drug use during these brain-forming years has been shown to affect the formation or the hardwiring of the brain. Mm. So it is dangerous in the brain-forming years. What about the rest of the population? You say that in the 19 to 25-year-old that the brain is still developing. So if you get someone who's over 25 and then starts to drink really heavily, is the risk of brain damage as high for them? Well, generally speaking, the years of heaviest drinking is the 18 to 25 years. Following this, there's a gradual decrease in the level of risky drinking over the remaining adult years. Now, that's probably lifestyle-driven, as people's relationships, jobs, mortgages become more important to them. But a lot of the damage done by alcohol is cumulative. Mm. So as people get older, if they continue to drink heavy, the damage mounts up. Mm. So, yeah, if they keep drinking, it will accumulate. Do you think as, as the youngsters mature that their attitude towards drinking changes, that they're less inclined to go binge drinking? Well, I think probably it's more to do that the other things become more important to them. Mm. So their relationships, jobs and mortgages probably take over the priority of their life. Other things become more important. Can you tell me the average amount taken by a mature adult? How much can they drink before it starts to, to do any damage? Sure. The safe level of drinking on a regular basis for women is up to two standard drinks per day and for men up to four standard drinks per day. But the guidelines also recommend one or two alcohol-free days per week. On an occasional basis, it's okay for women to drink up to four drinks a day and men up to six drinks a day, but certainly not on a regular basis. Above these levels, there's risk of damage and then the risk increases as consumption increases. Mm. So a, a standard drink is what, a midi of, one midi of beer or yes, one schooner? that's right, a midi of beer. And that's equivalent to a glass of wine? Yes, only 100 mils of wine, mm. so it's a relatively small glass of wine. And what about spirits? Yep, just a single nip of spirit is a standard mm. drink. And then with the fortified wine, so the port sherry brandy, it's mm. a 60 mil serve, which is the standard serve for the fortified wines. So what about these drinks that the youngsters are having, a fruit-based type thing? What would be the equivalent of one standard drink of those? Well, again, the alcohol content of those varies, and it's Mm. usually stated on the bottle, but they'll range between one standard drink and one and a half standard drinks normally in in a single serve. So they've still got to be very careful on how many they drink in the yes, course of an evening. and the, the trick is, I suppose, to really just keep a bit of a track on it. Mm. And um, you really do have to probably count 
the standard drinks that people are having. Do you think that the extended hours for hotels and licensed clubs has made a difference to the amount that people are drinking? It's certainly well known that there is a direct link between extended opening hours of licensed premises and increased alcohol-related crime. Mm. So that's certainly one clear indicator. Um, so there is some evidence to support the theory that extended mm. opening hours do, does impact. I have heard it said that the younger generations tend to go out just to drink rather than making it part of the entertainment for the evening. Is this becoming more more common? And I think the drinking to intoxication is the worrying thing. Mm. So whether they go out to get drunk or whether they go out, it's the actual drinking to intoxication that's that's worrying. One of the cultural changes that I believe needs to occur is that we as a nation need to civilise our drinking culture, you know, and make mm. it much more... Um, well, not drinking to intoxication, really. Do you think that people are aware of the damage it does not only to their brain but to the rest of their body as well? No, probably not. I think um, in relation to the damage to the body, there are things that we need to continue to try and increase the awareness about. Because mm. the liver is usually the organ that comes off worst, isn't it, as the result of drinking? Certainly, because the liver is the organ that has to break down the alcohol. Mm. That's the one that does the majority of the work. But really, alcohol c can damage most of the organs of the body, mm. certainly the heart, the pancreas, the stomach, the intestines, muscles, and then particularly the brain and the liver, yeah, mm. all are affected. And how common do you think the approach is, a couple of drinks won't do me any harm? Uh, I do think those sorts of phrases are part of the Australian culture, and to some extent that statement is true. A mm. couple of drinks won't do any harm. There is even some evidence to say that one or two drinks a day has some protective benefits for people aged over 40 but it comes back to what people mean by a couple of drinks or a few drinks um, we have to keep coming back to the recommended safe levels of drinking because the recommendations that I've just talked about are based on some very strong scientific evidence I'm talking today with Andrew Taylor about the long-term effects of alcohol on the person and on the community Andrew, do you think people are aware that alcohol is a poison? Alcohol is a very unique type of substance because depending on how much is consumed, it can act as a food, a drug or a poison. It can be called a food because it provides energy or kilojoules, but it's a very poor food because it has no other nutrients such as proteins or vitamins. Alcohol is a powerful drug and more particularly, it's a psychoactive drug in that it acts on the brain and changes the way people think, feel and behave. It's also toxic and can poison the body if it's taken in large amounts or with mm. other drugs. I guess the, the common thing that we associate with bad drinking is the fact that people lose their balance and fall over and not always generally disruptive in wherever they are. Do you think that, that people are aware of the damage that's being done to their brain at that stage when that's happening? Well, um, alcohol is a central nervous system depressant, so it sort of has a sedating effect on the brain, and that's why it sort of sedates people's inhibitions, and then their behaviour is, is then affected. 
But alcohol also interferes with normal brain functioning. It also has a toxic effect on the nervous system and the brain, and it can damage and destroy brain cells. It can also interfere with the absorption of thiamine, which is an important nutrient for normal brain function. Some wastage of brain cells is often caused by the dehydration that Mm. heavy drinking causes. And also there's falls and accidents associated with heavy drinking may lead to brain injury that way. Mm. There's also specific neurological conditions such as frontal lobe dysfunction or that's just basically injury to the frontal lobes of the brain. There's Korsakoff syndrome that in non-medical language is called the wet brain. And we also see a condition called cerebellar atrophy. Cells die and then the, the brain sort of sh- shrinks? Yes, the, um, the effects of the brain on the brain can be mild, moderate or severe. The alcohol brain damage is associated with changes in their people's thinking and memory or essentially their cognitive ability. Difficulties with balance and coordination are a range of medical and neurological disorders can happen. I guess the, the other thing that we see, unfortunately, quite commonly, um, is the fact that when the younger people get affected by the alcohol, that they tend to take more risks. I mean, they drive cars at greater rate and do silly things, jumping off walls or that sort of thing. And this is part of the, of the brain damage as, as the result of alcohol? Uh, Probably not as a result of brain damage, but it'll be due to the central nervous system depressing effect Mm. of the alcohol. So it sedates people's brains, but it certainly clouds and alters their judgment, you know, and people will do things while they've intoxicated that they wouldn't do otherwise. Mm. I think another important one is unplanned and unsafe sex. You know, there's a lot of... Um, evidence to show that you know, sexually transmitted infections mm. and unwanted pregnancies are related to intoxication as well. If the damage has been done to the brain, apart from actually stopping drinking permanently, can the, re- the damage that's been done be repaired naturally? It really depends on how severe the damage is. Um, our bodies do have some capacity to repair themselves in the early stages of damage and that's if the damage to the organs isn't too severe. Mm. But one of the worrying parts of this is that if someone gets some alcohol-related damage to the organ of their body, say their GP does a blood test and notices that their liver counts are very high and they're starting to get signs of alcoholic cirrhosis, um, even if the person then decides to stop drinking... If it's all gone too late, they then still have to live with the lasting effects of the damage. So it's only repairable in the early stages. Certainly when it comes to the brain damage, Mm. you know, that's and makes quite an impact on how people can live their lives. If someone makes up their mind they're going to stop drinking, are there clinics available for alcohol detox in the same way as there are for drugs like heroin and, and those sorts of things? Yes, there's a wide range of treatment services available. As you say, ranging from detox programs, there's counselling services. There's also quite a, well, there's a few medications available now that are Mm. useful to treat alcohol dependence. And there's the more um, 
intensive end of the treatment spectrum is residential rehabilitation programs mm. that people can go into and and live for you know up to 10 to 12 months sometimes uh, a bit like the drug rehab places where they can go and work right through it yes with on-site help yes mm. and the those sorts of programs they're often set up to cater for both alcohol and the illegal drugs. Mm. And are these clinics available all over the country? And if so, how can they be found? Certainly treatment services are available all over the country. Every state and territory has an alcohol and drug information service Mm. line and so you can probably search for those you know over the internet or you can contact the area health service of your area. But GPs also have a role to play in guiding people around Mm. the management of these Mm. sorts of things. So if someone listening is is not a resident of a major city or even a large city, um, there's still services available for them if they they want to find them. Certainly. There's probably a little bit of a a emphasis on accumulation of programs in the bigger metropolitan or larger regional areas, Mm. but there are certainly treatment services available in more rural areas areas Mm. and probably the best way is to talk with the local area health service. And are these clinics usually funded by the government or are they privately organised with places like Salvation Army and Lifeline? Is it a two-way thing between those and the government? Yes it is. Um, Both the government sector and the non-government sector provide treatment services and we also both work closely together Mm. Um, an example of that might be that if a person needs to book into a detoxification centre, they're mostly run by the government sector, mm. but then we might refer somebody off to the non-government sector to a residential program afterwards, and so oh, we link okay. we link in, yeah. in that way. And I guess um, Salvation Army and Lifeline would also be another contact place if someone was thinking about I've got to do something about my condition. Certainly, yes. Um, Salvation Army run quite an extensive list of treatment programs Mm -hmm. and services. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols and I'm talking today to Andrew Taylor. Andrew is a nurse clinical consultant on the drug and alcohol services with the Hunter New England Health. Andrew, I'd like to move on to other effects that heavy drinking can have, and that's the effects that it has on the family of a drinker. How much of a strain does drinking put on the family life? Again, it's difficult to answer in a categorical way because, you know, people vary so much. So it is different for different people. So some examples, I suppose, some people might realise quite early on that their drinking is a problem for them and then make the necessary changes, while others might go to their grave never having realised or changed their Mm. drinking. Mm. Does it sometimes take a shock? If you don't stop drinking, I'm going. Does it take a shock like that for sometimes for people to realise that now's the time? Yep, probably that is the case for the majority of people. Mm. While ever things are going along okay, people probably usually don't have the motivation to change. Certainly when they're coming into treatment services, there's normally some motivating factor that is driving their decision to seek treatment at that time. Mm. And it might be things like their partner said, you either do something about your drinking or I'm out of here or... 
Um, they might have gone to court on an alcohol-related charge or they've found out that they've got an alcohol-related illness mm-hmm. or medical problem. There's usually a specific factor that drives the decision yeah. to seek treatment. I guess in some ways it's a bit like people deciding they're going to give up smoking or they're going to go on a diet. They need something that motivates them for that first step. Yes. Once they get going on to the idea that they're going to do something about it, what sort of percentage of the people who start actually finish and go through and say, I am no longer drinking? Yeah. Is there a high percentage of, of success? Well, I think working in the addiction field, um, we know that addictions are chronic and relapsing conditions. Mm. So, you know, we have to target our approaches, target our attitudes to understanding that addictions are difficult conditions to turn around. And we have to work with our clients and patients around understanding that if people do have a hiccup or a lapse of some sort that it's not the end of the world that and work with them just about getting back on track so it certainly this relapsing nature is part of working and recovering from addictions but having said that there are lots of people who you know do turn around their lives and and that they are able to make sort of lifelong changes if they do fail in that first attempt or even the second attempt, they can still come back. They're still able to come back and start again. They're not sort of, oh, well, you've missed out the first time, tough. And that's, again, comes about with our increasing understanding of the addiction Mm. processes and things. We work very hard to try and always leave the door open. And even a lot of our counselling and intervention techniques around working with people around their motivation and Mm. what stage of change they're at. So, yeah, our staff are trained up in those types of counselling where we work with people. Sometimes people are a bit ambivalent about whether they want to change. A part of them wants to, another part doesn't. Um, So we work with that and and try and encourage people. The effects of alcohol often makes a difference to their sleeping pattern and that leads to depression. Do you find that sometimes that having been on a clinic and they're going quite well, they go through a phase of of depression and and they throw in the towel and and go back on the bottle? Well, there's certainly a strong association with alcohol and depression. Mm. Um, Alcohol can often be the direct cause for the depression And if it's not the direct cause, it will certainly worsen the severity of most depressive illnesses. Alcohol also interferes with the workings of antidepressant medication, making them less effective. But alcohol will basically make most mental health conditions Mm. worse. Mm. And we do have quite a large number of our clients and patients that have both a substance use problem and a mental health condition they Mm. are often interlinked and certainly their mental health symptoms can sometimes lead to relapse and again in our field of work we have to and we are getting better at working with sort of both sets of conditions Mm. we've been talking about the effect on the person what effect does alcohol and, and severe alcohol drinking have on the community an economic side of it Is it much of a drain on the community? Certainly. Just in relation to 
Um, the financial costs, the Australian government gets about $5.5 billion per year from the taxes on alcohol, alcohol mm. excises. But studies have shown that alcohol abuse costs the Australian community $7.6 billion per year. So we're running behind in actual fact. Yes. Yeah. And that's an, an enormous amount of money that is spent both ways, both from in the way of taxes and what we pay out. Yes. And do those costs, is that with the cost of rehabilitation and counselling as well as the amount of hours that are lost in the workforce? Um, the sort of health costs, first mm. of all, comes on two levels. There's the cost of the acute management of the health complications of heavy drinking, and that's the accidents, injuries, illnesses. Mm. They're often um, treated in general hospital system, mm. um, which is an expensive system. And then there's the cost of the actual treatment and rehabilitation. So, yeah, there's a couple of levels of cost there. Do you think that bearing all those costs in mind and the, the cost also to the individual, that a lot more needs to be done to educate the younger people. Um, and I'm thinking about the ones when they're still in high school, early high school, years perhaps eight, nine, where alcohol is obviously in the community, they know about it. But do you think they need to be better educated in its long-term effects? I certainly think that there's a large role to play there. Um, I think this area needs to be addressed on several levels. Um, the first one is aimed at intervening before problems have begun and health promotion and education campaigns are examples mm. of those and you know there is um, a fair bit of work going on in that area. The second level that needs to be targeted is, is aimed at early detection of disease and prompt treatment um, Example of that is that all sort of health professionals need to get better at screening people for alcohol misuse mm. um, in, on a routine sort of basis. The third level is aimed at limiting the effects of alcohol-related disease and disability and providing rehabilitation for people who have already got some residual damage. The issues to do with, um, or they're very complex issues to do with, alcohol advertising, taxes on alcohol, availability or uh, mm. opening hours of licensed premises, the parental role modelling um, and this the sort of alcohol culture of Australia, they're all things that impact on this fairly widespread problem. Uh, and to varying degrees, there are things need to happen at all of those levels. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. I've been talking with Andrew Taylor, Clinical Nurse Consultant on Drug and Alcohol Clinical Services with the Hunter New England Health. Thank you for joining us. I hope this program has answered some of your questions today. And on behalf of the team, this is Iris Nichols wishing you well.